Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100 to 1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. I'm Bastian Phelan, Outreach Officer at the Sydney Node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions. Today I'm interviewing Una McElvena, currently Hanson Lecturer in History at the University of Melbourne and a former postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre at the University of Sydney. Uh, welcome, Una. Hi, Bastian. Can you tell us about the focus of your research while you were at CHE? So I started a project on uh, the history of public execution, uh, and there's been a lot written about that. Um, so I decided that my angle would be about the songs that were written and sung about those executions and they told the news of crime and punishment in the past and I looked at them from um, several languages so English, French, Italian and German and uh, at the time that I started the project I had no idea how many there were I was hoping that there would be a lot but I really didn't know and in the end there are thousands and thousands I have too many that I, I don't know what to do with them all um, because this was a huge pan-European enduring tradition for centuries and they are um, a perfect resource a perfect source as it were to talk about emotions because um, as I often say you know public execution when you're talking about the history of emotions it's like someone's turned the dial up to 11 um, there's all the emotions there you know um, it's, it's a super emotionally charged event it's meant to be and then these sources these songs kind of add a whole nother level of emotion to them because you know they introduce music they introduce sensationalist lyrics they're designed to provoke all kinds of emotions in the singer and listener so it, you know it was a very obvious choice an appropriate choice for someone studying the history of emotions was to study these texts that were super super emotional what led you to frame your research project around execution ballads in the early modern period uh, when I started doing research for the execution project, I realized that people would quote verses from ballads, quotes a few lines, etc. So they were treated as if they were poems. But I thought, well, they're not poems, though. They're songs. They're completely different. And one of the really interesting things that, that jumped out at me straight away was that when the title of the poem was listed in the footnote, it would say, to the tune of. And I thought, oh, wow, now that's really interesting. I know from my own family history that that kind of idea of setting new words to a familiar tune introduces a whole new level of meaning there because the melody very often has all kinds of associations that come with it. So I was really interested in this thing that nobody seemed to be talking about, which was the choice of melody. And so as soon as I started the project, I realized that there were thousands of uh, English language ballads um, and in fact, my timing was quite a nice because there was a big digitization project that had just begun at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Um, the English ba Broadside Ballad Archive had started up, which was digitizing these thousands of English language ballads uh, uh, that are in libraries around the world. There was also a, a similar project that had uh, started even earlier than that at the Bodleian Library, which was cataloging and digitizing its collection of 30,000 ballads right up to the 19th century. I was able then to very quickly see that the, there were certain tunes that were used for certain things, uh, for certain topics, and that those tunes, if we investigated what 
they, they were used for previously, we realized that there was a whole, whole kind of level of meaning that went into the choice of the melody. So that became a, a, a past and present article, which was looking at the specific melodies um, and this tradition of what I've called contrafactum. Contrafactum is that setting of new words to old tunes or well-known tunes. And it's usually used in a medieval context in, in um, sacred music. But I was saying that this is, this is something that's in every kind of music, it's everywhere in Europe. We need to really pay attention to the melody because we're missing the full meaning of this multimedia artifact if we don't explore the music as well. For some reason, your description of the way these execution ballads work uh, kind of reminds me of the way that memes function today on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. They require a, they require a previous knowledge. Right. Yeah. You, can, you can understand them just as a sort of a joke, but if you understand the various layers of meaning that are piled on top of each other, you get the full sense of what it is, rather than just a kind of superficial, the superficial joke. That's what I've been spending my time trying to recover is the various layers of meaning, broadside ballads, or the, that's the English term, these, these are songs that are in every, in every language, the various layers of meaning that come into them that, you know, sometimes it's through the image, Sometimes it's through the printing, you know, sometimes it's through the melody. So for an article I did with the director of the um, English Broadside Ballad Archive Project, Paddy Fumerton organized a special issue of the Huntington Library Quarterly. And so for that, I looked at one specific melody and I've tracked it through 26 ballads. I've actually, since publication, I find more ballads set to that tune, but they all fall under this really, to me, very obvious kind of theme of greed for material wealth and the the sins and the crimes that it can lead you to commit and the punishment that you'll get for doing that so this kind of these warnings about how why we should avoid greed for material wealth and what's really interesting is that if we understand that a large portion of the market for ballots because of their price their very cheap price is the the people in the serving classes of early modern britain you know, young people who are working in domestic service or our apprentices or that sort of layer of young people, these songs are often directly addressed to them. You know, they kind of invite the young men to come and listen or the young maidens to come and listen. So there's this real kind of, you know, message of warning and teaching for young people about the threat that lies out there. As soon as I hear that melody now, I go, oh, okay, I know what's coming. Mm. You know, I know what this melody is supposed to make me think. Yeah. Before I've even heard any words. So why were the songs and verse used in the accounts of crime and execution? Uh, well, for a start, you have a society in which very few people can read and write. You know, literacy levels are, are very low generally. And so it's much more efficient to transmit information by putting it into verse that rhymes, that has a meter, um, and that's to a familiar tune. It's a mnemonic device that allows you to remember things much more easily. And then if, you, um, if you've never learned to read and write, your, um, your memory for the things you hear hourly are, is much stronger. And so you're very likely to be able to remember those words and, and retransmit them to other listeners. So it's a really effective way of you know, sending information around. And I mean, the whole point of public execution is that it's a deterrent. It's meant to be a deterrent, at least. They didn't realize that it wasn't, but it was designed to do that. And so there's no point in executing someone publicly unless you get the message of that punishment spread as far and as wide as possible. So this is the most convenient and efficient way to do it. And, you know, there's also a sense, I mean, we, in our modern era, we have, we've categorized and divided 
news and entertainment and morality into three sort of separate categories. And we get those things from different places and from different people. But in the early modern period, those things were not seen as separate. So it's absolutely par for the course that you can listen to a ballad that is about some terrible, horrific thing that warns you about your, your vices and, and morality, but that you love the tune and you see so you sing it again and again. And, and you learn about that thing that happened. Can you give us an example of a popular song of the time and potentially sing this song for us? Yeah, okay, so the, the most popular tune by far, I mean, without question, in 16th and 17th century England is Fortune My Foe. It's popular not only in England, but also in uh, the Netherlands, where it's, it's the number one pop tune of the era. Also in the tune, it's not known as, in, in, in Dutch, it's known as Le Fortune Anglaise, you know. In France, it's known as the Dame d'Honneur tune. It's the same melody, but it's known under a different name, which is basically just the, the, the most popular song sung to that tune, you know, lends, it's, lends the melody its name. Um, and it's a really miserable song. And I'm trying to think, there's, there's, a, there's songs about executions, disasters, miserable things are said to this tune because people were really pretty miserable, I guess. It's very simple to sing as well. Um, there's also, in, in England, it takes the, another name because of another song that it's set to that's super popular, which is called Aim Not Too High, which is all about, uh, you know, know your place and don't get any ideas above your station and just be happy with what you've got and that's it, right? So um, Anne Wallen is a, a woman who was executed in 1616 for murdering her husband. And she was therefore burned to death. And this, her song, which is Anne Wallen's Lamentation, is a really excellent kind of stereotypical example of an execution ballad. It's set to Fortune My Foe. It's in the first person voice of Anne herself, who sings at Smithfield, you know, on the, on the gallows, looking at the flames and saying to, you know, singing to the crowd, listening, saying, you know, don't do what I did. I'm a terrible woman who, even though my husband yelled at me and beat me up and did all these terrible things, I should have known my place and I should have put up with it. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, I turned around and, and I mean, you know, we do have spectators, uh, eyewitnesses at the execution who were, you know, knew that this woman had acted in self-defense, but that's not the message that you get in the ballad, right? The ballad is about reinforcing of ideas of, patriarchal authority, which is really standard. So um, she sings, so I can sing a, a, a verse for it. Ah, me the shame unto all womankind to harbor such a thought within my mind that now hath made me to the world a scorn and make me curse the time that I was born. If ever died a true repentant soul, then I am she whose deeds are black and foul. Then take heed, wives, be to your husbands kind, and bear this lesson truly in your mind. Which is, you know, that's how it goes, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> Yeah, but you can see the emotional appeal of that song just straight away. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, 
um, as soon as you hear that tune, you're in the mood. Do you know what I mean? You, you're already in the, halfway there, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because you've heard so many songs that tell you these stories about, you know, this is a veil of tears that we dwell in and what we need to be thinking about is our afterlife. I mean, that's really, if I could, you know, there's one message that every one of these ballads tells us. It's not about this world we live in because this world sucks and we're trying to get on to the next one where everything is great, right? And if you live your life and you're repentant for all of the sins that you commit every day because we're all sinners, then, you know, if you're truly repentant at your death, as Anne Wallen is, I mean, that's really important. She's about to die. She's super repentant of everything she's ever done. And then there's a chance that she'll go to heaven. And that's what it's all about. Mm. You've got a great singing voice as well. Were you a singer before you started studying this? No, I wasn't. No, not at all. <laughs> I just started, um, I just thought, well, there's no point in working on, you know, it's nuts to work on melody and not know what it sounds like. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So, um, yeah, I didn't know I could sing. So <laughs> it's been a nice discovery. And how did it affect you emotionally when you were learning to sing these songs? You know, it's funny, um, most of the time I don't get emotionally involved with any of these sources. I, I, I read about horrific things every day, people being mutilated and tortured and all kinds of stuff. And it just, most of the time it's kind of Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, I, Tom and Jerry sort of violence to me, it's cartoon, I can't process it because it's so horrific, like, you know, people being, you know, broken on the wheel and stuff. Um, but there was once I did a, a, a radio show for ABC Radio National and the producer wanted me to sing one of these songs from start to finish. And these ballads are really long. I mean, that's the other thing. And, I, you know, I think we always have to remember, of course, people didn't have radios or even recorded music. So you had to be in the physical presence of someone who could perform music for you or else, you know, yourself. So people had a lot more time to sort of sit and listen to songs and be caught up in them. And I have to say that whatever song it was that I was singing, I can't remember it now, but by the time I got to the end of it, it really builds, you know, to the point, you know, the, all of them, they're quite formulaic. So you get to the end and, you know, this girl is standing, looking at the flames and going, oh God, please, Jesus, please save me now, right? I mean, that's literally the last words of the verse, you know, she turns to Jesus and, and begs for forgiveness. And I have to say, I was quite, by that point, I'd been singing it for, you know, a solid sort of five minutes and it built to this kind of climax at the end. And I was genuinely for the first time really quite moved by it. But I have to say, I think, you know, I have a, a healthy, you know, distance. <laughs> I think if I was really getting emotionally involved with this stuff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to function as a researcher. <laughs> mm, yeah. I think it's, it's hard most of the time or it, it's the only time I, I should say that I, I have kind of faltered is when you know that the person is innocent or you know that they're very young and that's hard um, to, to even read that. How does the history of emotions help us to understand death? It's vital, particularly when we think about the history of emotions and particularly the, the project that the Centre for the History of Emotions um, here in, in Australia has done because it's particularly a medieval and early modern project, uh, a centre of excellence. And our understanding of death in the modern world, at least in the modern Western world, is profoundly different to what it was in the past. And so we have very much in our modern world pushed death away. We try to deny its existence. We don't talk about it. There's a stigma around it. And I, I think it's a really unhealthy stigma. Uh, you know, this uh, total denial of this thing that happens to absolutely every single one of us. 
that you know simply was not the case in the medieval and early modern world death was all around and you were constantly reminded of it and you know that's one of the things that ballads do is they constantly remind you that you know this is, could happen to you anytime and so you always have to be repentant and you know the processes of death and decomposition were much more obvious and everyday for people living in the past um, and I think we you know nowadays when somebody dies they go they probably die in hospital and they, they're taken away and a lot of people never see that person that loved one when they're dead you know which is it's a it's a really strange kind of vacuum I think that we've created and that certainly was not the case in in, in the past so it's it's really helpful to to understand this and I've learned so much myself about the various kinds of emotions that are perhaps surprising around death. I mean, one of the most recent things that I discovered was in working on a project on the beliefs around the magical, religious, sacred powers of the parts of the body of the executed criminal. So it was widely believed right up to the 19th century that the blood of a decapitated criminal would cure epilepsy. Wow. Various parts of the body would bring good luck. You know, there's sort of talismanic beliefs around them. But particularly, for example, that blood of the executed criminal. So people would gather in, in large numbers around the scaffold, waiting for the head to be chopped off. And they would rush forward with mugs and cups and beakers to capture this blood and then drink it down really quickly. And then, you know, run to try and get this stuff to work. And so I, you know, when I really thought about it, I thought I never, you know, I expected the sort of emotions of, you know, anger and revulsion and compassion and fear and things to be at the execution site. But this idea of hope that maybe this person dying is going to secure me, mm. you know, and that, that incredible panicked desperation based around hope that's also there, which really was a, a revelation for me, for someone who's been working on this for, for quite some time now, that that was, that was a, whole, a wholly new level of emotion that I hadn't been aware of. I think there's, there's all kinds of ways that this emotions project has just profoundly altered how we, how we thought about things like death, yeah. That's an incredible example. <laughs> Something that I've, no, I've never heard of and never would have considered. I mean, we have, we have an example of people throwing themselves to the ground because there are drops, you know, they've run out of blood of this person, you know, the body only pumps blood for a certain amount of time. And, you know, then they, they, they're so desperate that they fall to the earth where there are spats, uh, spatters of blood on the ground and they are shoving soil into their mouths because there's blood in it. And that is such a, you know, I can't think of any more emotive kind of scene than people desperately eating dirt just to try and save their lives. It's, it's really quite extraordinary to think about that. You know, it's something we just don't expect from the, the process of execution at all. Mm. How does your research connect with contemporary issues related to emotions, the media and death? Well, I mean, the most obvious one is the idea of singing the news. I'm just involved with a, a project on trust that's getting off the ground here at Melbourne and um, talking about the traditions of news reporting in the past and how they continuities that I see with news reporting in the present. When you, when you talk about singing the news, um, most people go, you know, what is that? I've never heard of such a thing. Um, and it seems very, very different to the kinds of news that we, as we understand it today. But actually there's an enormous amount of uh, continuity. The, the categories of news are very similar. You know, they are 
crime and punishment, politics, military, you know, uh, natural disasters. Yet people don't, the newscasters don't sing anymore. I mean, that's certainly a difference. But there is still that concern with the reliability of news and the trustworthiness of the person delivering the news. And that's something that that news uh, stations are always trying to, you know, they're always trying to get that message across, particularly in their ads. They'll say, you know, Channel 7 is the news team you could trust. Mm. As if, as if for some reason we wouldn't want to trust them as it, you know, it implies that, you know, a, we can't trust the other guys and also maybe we shouldn't trust this. You know, why, why wouldn't we trust the news? And that is a, a, an ancient concern, right? From the beginnings of, of news reporting as we understand it. So, you know, news singers are standing on the street singing these news and, and people make fun of them and dispute their claims to, to truth. And all of these songs, are, you know, they always claim that they're new and they're true. They're a new report about, you know, new and true report about the comet that was in the sky or the battle that was waged here, etc. And yet there are all kinds of ways in which, you know, we know the news is not being presented as truth as we would understand it. So that idea of, as I said, you know, Anne Wallen, this woman who's executed for, for murder, the fact that she would, you know, or the idea that she would stand on the scaffold singing her last words, you know, in beautiful verse is, is a fantasy, right? But people are willing to accept that kind of fantasy. And yet, you know, she, she was executed. We have a date, we have, you know, records of her being executed at Smithfield on that date. So in a sense, there's facts that are true. And, and you know, I don't think they're any less reliable because they're in a song in the past than they are, you know, when we turn on the news in the evening today. And of course, that's a major, issue today is, you know, fake news and what can you trust and who can you trust? And you need historians to explain to you how to use, you know, reliable sources. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <Still> thinking. <laughs> I guess I was thinking about how, you know, in Australia, we don't have capital punishment and uh, probably in a lot of countries around the world, if they do, it's not necessarily public, but I definitely remember as a, teenager hearing about for example Timothy McVeigh being put to death in the United States and feeling very emotionally affected by that you know listening to the Triple J news on my clock radio when I woke up in the morning and hearing this and I'd followed it for a few days and I really somehow wanted him to escape the death penalty even though he had committed some atrocious acts yeah I just wanted to ask why is it important to study the history of public execution. Yes, yeah, so it seems very foreign to us that people would be publicly executed and that, you, you know, people, even more foreign that people would go and see it. You know, why would you go and watch this thing happen? You know, because we tend to think of execution today as being uh, something secretive in the American style. We have profoundly shifted, we've in fact reversed justice as we would understand it in, um, from the early modern period. So. In the early modern period, we would accept that, um, we would expect that the trial is conducted entirely in secret, and then they just emerge from the court and say so and so is guilty, and they are convicted and sentenced to death, and then the punishment would be completely in public. That was central to the whole idea of punishment: that the person has to expiate their sins in front of the community, and the community has to witness and be part of that expiation. And of course, we've completely reversed that now. We expect the trial and everything to be out in the open and everything. And then if they are executed, it's seen as cruel and inhumane to, 
you know, to allow people to watch, except for, you know, selected people. Of course, that's the American style. I mean, you know, you go to Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, lots of other places, punishments are absolutely public for the same reasons that they were in the early modern period, that it's seen as something that the, the community should witness. It's, it's thought to be a deterrent. And of course, all of these countries that practice execution, whether it's public or private, still believe that there is a, you know, a deterrent value. Statistics have proven again and again that there isn't a deterrent value whatsoever. But also what they'll say now, so you know, those who still argue for uh, capital punishment no longer use the deterrent argument. They tend to say, they were so bad they deserved it and it's retribution which is a you know a fancy word for revenge and that's a totally human emotion you know to want to avenge a terrible thing you know that there's nothing wrong with that we think now that you know since the enlightenment that although you know revenge is, is a very you know natural emotion or the, the desire for revenge is a natural emotion that it doesn't serve society's purposes you know for the good of all of us for us to to you know keep that cycle of violence going um, and that's why we don't have the parents of a murdered child on the jury you know because the emotions are too strong right we can't you have to be impartial so we've we've profoundly changed our ideas of how justice should be executed in every way i have to say to me there's something honest about the early modern spectacle of punishment. Um, this idea that we think that somehow our prison and, and justice system is somehow more humane than it was is a fantasy. You only have to visit prisons to see that that's not the case. And now we execute our justice in secret and we you know, commit all kinds of terrible acts upon human bodies, but nobody gets to find out about it. That to me is a, is a you know, really argues against any kind of teleological narrative about how we're a more humane society. And, you know, we, you know, I think you can really judge a society based on how it treats its prisoners. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one really good way of, of um, assessing it. I'm not saying bring back you know, capital punishment or any kind of public uh, punishment, but the idea is that I don't think we're necessarily any, any better about this, about how we deal with our, with crime and the causes of crime. Mm. And in a way, having it so secretive and removed from the public eye also could stifle critical commentary on those practices. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the other, the other side of it is that people want to, you know, televise American executions. And I don't think that's the response either. <laughs> but there is, a, there is an honesty, I think, about the, the early modern system. But the, it's, it's so more complicated than simply public versus private, you know, um, in the early modern period, there was a whole range of punishments depending on what social rank you were. Um, so it didn't just matter what, what the crime was, it mattered who you were in society. And so you would leave this earth, you know, at the social rank that you had entered it, you know, so if you were a queen, uh, you got decapitated with a sword. If you were just a regular pleb on the street, you got hanged. Um, you you know, there's all levels of shame depending on the method of punishment and the shame then would reside with the family you left behind who would be stigmatized and ostracized, not just because of the crime you had committed, but because of the way you had been punished. So we find petitions from families in the, you know, in the 18th century to the, the Home Office saying, please don't hang my son. Can you please decapitate him instead? Because otherwise, you know, his cousins won't be able to get married. 
uh, his father will be kicked out of the guild. You know, that sort of argument that this isn't about him because he's going to die anyway. It's about the, the effects of the shame of the method of execution on the family that's left behind. So there's a whole, you know, very complex range of social issues at play. It's not simply the fact that it's done in public or private. Great. And it's wonderful to see how history of emotions can continue to comment on that very broad range of complex and interesting emotions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a cop-out for every historian to say it's more complex than that, you know, but it is, it really, <laughs> I think we need to, um, we need to be aware of all the various things that are, are at play in, in a system of justice. For example, in the American system, we have, you can't talk about the, the justice system without talking about race, for example. So it's, it's not it's simply about saying one method is more humane than another. There's so many intersections of different kinds of issues. Wonderful. Very exciting project and really great to talk to you about it today. Thank you. And you can buy my book when it comes out. <laughs> oh, amazing. Tell us about your book. The book is uh, Singing the News of Death, Execution Ballads, 1550 to 1900. So it's the long history of execution balladry in Europe right up to the 20th century. We still have records of people singing songs about people being executed up to World War II. You know, I think it was important to tell a story that wasn't simply early modern, but also into what we would consider to be the modern period. Um, and it will have a, an accompanying uh, public facing database of songs and recordings, and you'll be able to listen to the songs. And, wow, and, and like, an, like a academic audio book? Yeah. I really look forward to um, listening to those songs and reading your work in the future. Thank you. And, um, all the best for your future research. Thanks, Bastian. If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website, www.historyofemotions.org.au.